This is Pulp and Paper Canada, the podcast, hosted by Pulp and Paper Canada magazine, the industry's news source since 1903. You've tuned in to hear conversations with pulp and paper experts on the latest technologies and trends affecting this essential part of Canada's forest products sector. Hello and welcome to Pulp and Paper Canada, the podcast. I'm Christina Urquhart, editor of Pulp and Paper Canada magazine. A sustainable sourcing plan and supply chain are key to building responsible forestry business models for pulp and paper companies. Here with me today to discuss how forest management and certification can impact pulp and paper operations is Rebecca Barnard, Forestry Certification Manager for SAPI North America. Rebecca manages SAPI's FSC, SFI, and PEFC chain of custody certificates, FSC controlled wood certificate, and SFI fiber sourcing certificate throughout the United States and at SAPI's mill in Canada. She also provides training, support, and strategic direction on certifications to SAPI staff across the globe. In addition to SAPI, Rebecca is an active member in the Society of American Foresters. In the past, she served as the National Forestry Programs Manager for the National Wild Turkey Federation and as Forest Certification Coordinator for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. With that, let's get started with this episode on forest management in pulp and paper with Rebecca. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I want to start by asking you, what is responsible forestry? Yeah, you know, that is a great question, and there's no short answer to it. Um, But I think that that's one of the reasons I love working in forestry. I like to say that forestry is as much of an art as it is a science. And there's no one right answer because Mother Nature and every tree and every acre of forest is unique. And that creates that challenge, that excitement and the passion that many of us in forestry have because it is constantly a balancing act, looking at what you have now, what you envision in that area for the future, what the landowner goals are, what the needs are of the local communities, uh, of society in the world. And Mother Nature changes, the world changes, our expectations change. And so uh, the profession is constantly evolving. And I think if it was right or wrong, clear cut, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't inspire the creativity and the passion that it does. So first and foremost, that's what I like to say about the profession of forestry is that it really is an art and a science, taking what you have now, just like a painter might, and sculpting it to what you want to see in the future and needing to be adaptive throughout that process is key. Gifford Pinchot, who was the first chief of the United States Forest Service in 1905, he coined a phrase which is still in use today, which is that responsible forestry is managing for the greatest good, for the greatest number, for the longest run. And that really speaks to me because it describes what I just mentioned. You can't expect to achieve perfection on every acre of ground, and you can't manage for everything everywhere. You will end up managing for nothing because you will end up in an analysis paralysis type quagmire. You need to figure out what is that balancing act of the multiple uses and the multiple goals for a property. And a working forest, a forest that is adaptive and constantly being improved, that's a healthy forest and that's responsible forestry. And so, you know, when you look across the landscape, you will have some areas where you take more of a preservationist mindset, where for particular reasons, maybe you do have more of a hands-off or a lighter touch, but that comes with consequences and risks too. And so I always tell folks that a decision to not actively manage is still a management decision. And there are consequences and risks to that, which need to be evaluated and monitored. 
And so working in the forest products industry, we believe that a conservationist approach, an active management approach that takes into account those multiple needs and multiple uses, and those trade-offs, which are always present and always need to be considered, that that across the landscape achieves perfection. And that across the landscape helps to maintain diverse forests that are in different uh, successional stages, meaning different ages, different species mixes, managed for different uses. That helps us combat uh, risks of a lot of things that, that we find, you know, floods, uh, pests and pathogens. And we might get into some of those conversations later on. But that's what I want to leave, uh, you know, you and your viewers with is that science evolves and so do our forest. A tree today is not going to be the same tomorrow. It grows, it changes just like we as humans do. And, you know, forestry needs to, uh, and our, our management, our approach to forestry needs to take that into consideration and recognize that there's always going to be those trade-offs. And it's about balancing the environmental, the economic, and the societal needs, because unless all three are considered, and unless all three are balanced, your decisions will not be sustainable and you will not end up with responsible decisions that benefit the greatest good for the greatest number for the longest run. It's really great advice. When you're talking about that decision to not manage or to leave things, what are some of the consequences? Are you talking about forest fires, that kind of thing? Forest fires is certainly one great example. And, and certainly not every forest fire is the result of a decision to not manage. But we are seeing catastrophic and very, very wide scale, frequent, intense fires that are not natural. That, and by I say not natural, meaning they would not have occurred with the frequency, the intensity, the severity, and the, uh, the wide scale nature, you know, the size of those fires. You may have had some very large fires, but they would have been few and far between, and you would have had uh, less intense fires in the meantime that would have helped to perhaps maintain healthy balance of uh, underbrush and, and uh, nutrients in the soil and those sorts of things. So certainly wildfire is one consequence that the North America and the world uh, has seen right now. And when you have aging forests, you decide to take a preservationist approach to your question or a hands-off approach. I think it's natural for us as humans to think that that means that what we see today is going to be the same tomorrow, next month, next year, et cetera. And that isn't how Mother Nature in the world works. And so those trees and everything around those trees in that ecosystem continues to change. Sometimes with a preservationist approach, because there is no active management, there also is no monitoring, and there also is no flexibility to adapt when conditions change. It's the idea that it's going to stay stagnant or static, and that doesn't happen. And so as those trees age, you do have more die-offs, just like a garden. If you don't harvest your your vegetables or your fruits, they're not going to stay in that condition, in a healthy condition, a vibrantly growing condition uh, forever. They're going to die. They're going to fall over. You're going to have pests, pathogens, so diseases that will come into play. And if those go unchecked, you have a whole host of other problems on your hands. You could have, um, for instance, floods or soil erosion because you've changed the dynamic of the uptake of water from the soil, of the evapotranspiration. Obviously, with, with trees dying, they release carbon. They're not sequestering carbon uh, because uh, you know, they're not going through photosynthesis. So there's that whole part of the equation. And also, there's two other things I really want to mention because we'll come up probably later in our discussion. Uh, when you decide to not manage a forest, you really have to take into consideration the landowner and the landowner's needs. If a landowner is not able to manage their forest, they're also not able to create revenue from their forest. 
And that's important because it means the landowner won't be able to either pay their taxes and or they won't be able to reinvest in their forest, doing things like forest health treatments, replanting and regeneration techniques, uh, wildlife habitat improvement projects, all of those things that as a responsible steward of your forest you would be doing, a lot of that is funded by the proceeds and the revenue from thinnings and from harvest. So that's one really important aspect. But the second is, if we continue to have a preservationist mindset and believing that the cutting of a tree and the wise utilization of a tree is bad, we force ourselves into non-renewable materials for societal goods. Because let's face it, as a society, we still need product. And one thing that we're seeing, of course, is that trees and through very innovative manufacturing and products can replace single-use plastics in many types of materials. So we have to realize that, yes, there are trade-offs, but we have a renewable, regrowable resource here. And the sequestering of carbon, not only through the growing of the tree, but through the manufacturing of a wood-based product is far better than utilizing non-renewable materials. So you're working for SAPI, which is a pulp and paper company. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that pulp and paper companies in particular can increase their efforts when it comes to being responsible foresters? Well, first I'll say that it really does have to be both top-down and a bottom-up commitment. And I think both are important. I think you need any company, it could be a landowner or a pulp and paper company, I think you need to have that leadership, that inspiring vision, and that commitment from the top-down. And certainly at SAPI, we have that because there's always going to be those trade-offs. And I think it's important that leadership value science and value and have the courage to make the right decision based on that, that balance. So that's number one. Number two, I do think you need the bottom-up commitment though as well. You need all of the staff and the departments at any level in the company to understand that no matter what their role is in the company, whether they're an accountant, whether they're someone working in IT and technology, whether they're a forester, they have a role in sustainability. They have a role in making sure that as a company, we are profitable, yes, so that we can stay in business, but that we're meeting the needs of society and that we're meeting the needs today and in the future, because that's how we stay in business. And if we stay in business, then we can continue to have that broad reaching positive impact on, of course, the forests and also throughout the supply chain. So I think you need the entire company and all the staff to understand their role and to really take pride in their role. Second, I think it's really important to not focus only on avoiding risk. And that could be, of course, there's supply chain risk, et cetera. But when we think about forests, there's always going to be risk in any activity that we do. And, you know, we have a lot of conditions in the world of forestry that we can't control and that we can't predict. You could plan a harvest, you could plan your, your planting and your natural regeneration and your silvicultural techniques with the best available science, the, the, the best uh, vision for the future. And, you know, next week you could have a horrific tornado, you know, or something like that that comes through. We can't predict that. We can't control that. And having contingency plans are important, but you can't avoid risk. I think you need to do your, your utmost individually and collaboratively to identify risk, to mitigate risk, but then to proceed and to, to remain adaptive, remain flexible, and to be proactive about adjusting when necessary and accepting that again, you can't manage for everything everywhere. And I think lots of times it's easy to just focus on identifying risk and avoiding risk. And doing so 
as we've already mentioned, you can create additional risk, however. So, you know, we're, I think in forestry, it's important to not strive for perfection on every acre, but rather to strive for perfection in terms of the diversity of your management and your commitments across the landscape. And then the last thing um, I'll mention on this same point would be that I think it's really important to continuously commit to continuous improvement. <laughs> it's a mouthful right there. But continuous improvement is, is critical. You know, as humans, we're always learning from history and from our actions. And forestry is no different. Forestry has a strong history and culture of shared lessons learned, uh, reviewing data, improving our, our understanding of science and the world and forest and the ecosystems, and then building upon that and adjusting as we go. And I think that as a company, you, you have to have that dedication to continuous improvement. And I think that that also empowers staff, because I think sometimes there's a tendency, you know, in some cases to not accept or not admit failure. And I maybe I have a different definition of failure. I, I don't think failure is the end-all be-all. You can always adjust from that. And you can always take something that didn't work out the way you thought and do it better next time and incorporate that into your operations and into your understanding. And with that transparency and that commitment to do so, then you no longer are afraid of those failures, if you will. They become lessons learned and they become growth opportunities. And I think that's really how we move forward together. That's great. So Canada has about 40% of our forests certified. I know the U.S., it's a bit less. You also have a much more complex system when it comes to forest management. So certification is a very intensive and years-long process. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what companies can do to get themselves ready for certification, uh, if it's something that they're thinking about. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I appreciate you asking that. And you're certainly correct. It, it is a, not a quick fix. And that's the first thing that I think people need to understand. The process of achieving certification doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen even in, in a month. Um, as you say, it is a years-long process and certainly a years-long process in the sense of really integrating certification into your processes. I think it's important to recognize that uh, certification, uh, responsible forestry, all these things we're talking about really require engagement and commitment, not only from the entity seeking certification. So let's use SAPI as an example. You know, SAPI has been certified for over 15 years. If we were the only entity in our supply chain certified, it would be meaningless. So certification requires engagement and commitment, not only of the entity attempting to become certified, but from that supply chain. And without that, it really won't achieve what you're hoping it would achieve. So you have to have that commitment and, and we like to say at SAPI that sustainability starts with the supply chain. And I think that that's true here. Um, you have to engage your suppliers. And also, you have to engage your customers. You have to make sure that that entire value chain is prepared for the changes and the requirements that certification brings. Because it does bring changes and it does bring additional requirements. There's no way around that. And I think it's very important also to go into certification with that mindset. If you're going to go into certification, thinking that you can achieve it overnight and that you're not going to have to do anything differently. I would challenge you to take another look at the certification requirements and to really uh, be honest you know, with yourself and, and with yourself as a company, uh, because that isn't the goal of certification. The goal of forestry certification is, again, that focus on continuous improvement with the idea that there's always something you can be doing better. And I think unless you pursue certification with that goal in mind, you're going to devalue and really undercut 
the biggest benefit that, that I've seen from certification. So that's, that's uh, one set of points I'd like to make. Also, I think it's important to recognize, again, it needs to be top down and bottom up. And what I mean by that from the standpoint of certification is uh, you need to have that leadership commitment because there will be times where tough decisions are going to need to be made. But you need to have the experts and the on the ground. And when I say on the ground, it could be a forester, could be someone in accounting or, like I said before, in, in IT. It could be someone like myself, a certification manager. You're going to need your sales staff. You're going to need your marketing staff. You know, people across the entire company, in all facets of the company, are going to need to learn about key aspects of certification that influence their job. And they're going to need to approach it with an open mind and with the ability and the willingness to make changes. Sometimes those changes are very small. It could be a simple documentation type change or a different way of tracking certain data. But some cases, they're not small changes. And so if you don't have that leadership support, recognizing there's going to be additional costs and staffing requirements, then you're, you're setting yourself up for failure in that regard internally. But if you don't have that staff awareness and willingness from the workers, right, the people who are actually managing the data, implementing processes, you maybe you have leadership support, but if you don't have that awareness and understanding, you're not going to be in compliance. You're going to constantly have compliance gaps, which will be found in these audits. So those are some points. And a bit specifically, let me mention a few other things. I think it's really important that, number one, that you take the time before engaging with an auditor. And I should back up. I assume we all know, but I never should assume that with certification, there are annual audits that are required. Internal audits, either conducted by yourself as a company or perhaps hiring a second-party consultant, as well as third-party external audits. That's a requirement of all of the certification standards very similar to ISO. A lot of people are familiar with the ISO process. And so in those audits, that's where your compliance to the standards would be assessed. And it's very important before you pursue certification, undergo those audits, that as a company, you take the time to plan, assess, conduct some gap analyses uh, to prioritize. There will be probably numerous things you have to change over time. Those have to be prioritized. You know, you start with the biggest gaps. And it's important to dedicate enough resources to certification. A lot of companies think they can become certified to these complex standards without any additional staffing. And typically that's not successful. I always advise that, you know, hire a certification manager, an expert such as myself. If you don't have the ability to hire a full-time person, hire someone part-time or find a consultant who can work with you, you know, under a non-disclosure agreement and, and can really serve your best interests. Certification is a game of details and it's very complex and you need to have someone who's going to take the time to understand those and to be honest with your company about those gaps. And that's the other thing, you know, don't strive for perfection. Certification is meant to find areas where you can improve. And so if a company is pursuing certification with the goal of patting themselves on the back and or expecting perfect perfection from all staff at all times, that is also a fairly dangerous way to approach certification. You should be open to transparency. You should be open to those continuous improvement findings. And, and you really need to be so in order to inspire the staff to engage in a way that's going to be meaningful. If a pulp and paper company doesn't manage its own forest, which we have a, a number in Canada that don't, why would it want to source its fiber from a supplier that is managing a certified forest? So first off, let me, let me just mention that uh, SAPI, uh, we're certified to multiple different standards and have been for over 15 years. We do not uh, exclusively source certified fiber from certified forests. 
nor does really any, any company out there, whether they're in the pulp and paper or the solid dimensional lumber business. That's not realistic. And I would also argue it's not necessary. This might sound strange being the certification manager for SAPI and, and a company that's very invested in certification, but I think it's important to recognize that certification is only one tool in the toolbox, and it isn't going to be the right fit for every landowner. It is very complex. It's costly. It requires staff. So if you have you know, small private landowners, are typically it's, it's not feasible uh, for them to be certified, and in many cases, it's not necessary because of the various different types of private landowner outreach programs and assistance programs that we have throughout Canada and throughout the U.S. So I did want to just mention that right up front, that I want to be very clear so that we don't set a false perception that a certified forest is being managed responsibly and a non-certified forest is not being managed responsibly. That that is untrue. The level of responsibility and sustainability with which a forest is managed can be measured by certification, but it is not a one-to-one ratio. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. So that's uh, very important to recognize. And that being said, certification is certainly valuable. If you as a chain of custody certified manufacturer want to provide your downstream customer with a claim of certified forest content, then you have to have certified forests that you're sourcing from. And the chain of custody process and certification requirements uh, require that you have data processes and and procedures in place to track that certified fiber from the forest all the way through your manufacturing process and your sales process to that downstream customer. So you can't have certified forest product claims on products without that certified forest land base. And having certified forests provides that third-party assurance that those very complex and and holistic standards are being met. Um, Things such as biodiversity, promoting and conserving biodiversity, implementation of best management practices for soil and water conservation, um, utilization of trained loggers and trained professionals, all of those things and and many more, of course, legal compliance and engagement with uh, First Nations, um, Indigenous peoples, uh, stakeholder input and feedback, all of those things are throughout the various certification standards. And so when you are sourcing from a certified forest, you have that complete assurance that that forest landowner and that management process has gone through audits, um, annual internal and external audits. Uh, You have that commitment that that landowner is invested in continuous improvement. You have a commitment of transparency, things of that sort. So I think it is certainly important to have a mix of sourcing from certified forests, and a lot of it depends on the landowner in your needs and and variation. But again, I want to make sure we're very clear that non-certified forests can be and oftentimes are managed very, very responsibly, meeting many of those same, if not all of those same requirements. I'm glad you said that because, you know, from the downstream consumer's perspective, I think that a lot of people are looking for that, that logo, that quality assurance, as you say. How can people who maybe aren't going to go the certification route ensure that their downstream customers have that same sort of assurance, even if it is managed equally as sustainably, if not more? Excellent question. It's really important, I think, to make sure that uh, wherever you fall in the supply chain, that, you know, that a, a company or an organization you've identified for yourself and for your suppliers and your customers, what your core values are and what your expectations are. And, and that's first and foremost. And I, I think sometimes that isn't done. And, and so, as I mentioned, you know, you can't 
strive for perfection all of the time. I think it's very important to recognize that there are risks and that there are still opportunities where we as a world are, are continuing to evolve and learn. That said, I think it's very important to set those expectations, to be clear with yourself about what they are. And so, for instance, SAPI has a supplier code of ethics, and we have a supplier code of conduct. And this is communicated to all of our suppliers every year, both in writing as well as through in-person discussions, uh, sustainability summits and meetings, um, and, and many other ways. And so I think it's you know contractual language, et cetera. I think it's very important that you have that supplier awareness and that supplier engagement and commitment, regardless of whether they're certified or not. But similarly, I think it's also important to do that downstream or upstream, depending on how you look at it, that customer engagement to make sure that your customers understand what your core values and principles are, what you are committing to, what you are maybe looking at in terms of continuous improvement and growth opportunities, and to work together to really leverage that whole value chain. Uh, because there are still challenges that we, you know, that of course we deal with both in the forest and beyond the forests. And it's going to take that whole value chain to, to be honest about those and to really partner together to make progress. Um, so I think having that clarified through a set of, as I say, either code of conduct type policies and procedures. Another way is to have very clear due diligence system in place. And certainly at SAPI, we have a very rigorous due diligence system that we run all of our wood fiber inputs and suppliers through this due diligence a process of information gathering, risk assessment, and risk mitigation. And again, that's regardless of whether they're certified or not. And so I think there are things that can be put in place in the spirit of, again, that due diligence and being proactive. So mitigating and identifying risks, but also being proactive about the future needs and just continuing to do the best that we can. So coming back to certification and how those programs differ. I mean, SAPI is certified under FSC, SFI, and PEFC. So how do those programs differ? And if you have one, why do you need the others? And another really great question. And there's certainly, it's a acronym soup out there. So it's hard to keep them all straight sometimes, that's for sure. All of the programs certainly do differ. And, and that's uh, you know inherent there in the question. Each program was established in a different part of the world, quite frankly, and with a different audience in mind, and in some cases for a different initial reason. And I think it's important to understand that history. Each program has evolved significantly, but it's important to understand why the programs were created, I think, to sometimes make sense of the differences in those programs. Uh, They all have their strengths and weaknesses, but in the end, they all cover the main common aspects of responsible forestry and sustainable procurement and manufacturing. If I give just some real brief examples, not to dive into the weeds too much, but for instance, FSC, the Forest Stewardship Council, they were founded in the early 1990s by uh, a variety of environmental NGOs to really halt the degradation and deforestation of the rainforest. That was one of their core initial driving principles. If you look at where FSC has succeeded uh, and been successful, they've been predominantly successful in the Northern Hemisphere in developed countries, not in countries with rainforests. So, you know, initially their focus was one thing, they've evolved and found different opportunities and successes elsewhere, but when you recognize that they're a global standard uh, with the original intent of, you know, improving and ensuring responsible forestry in developing nations and nations oftentimes with real severe problems and and challenges, uh, both on the environmental, but also the societal front you know, uh, legal workplace uh, policies and ethics and, and uh, just basic 
legal compliance in general, or whether it be labor relations or you know, trade and, and that sort of thing, that filters into their standards. FSC is a very prescriptive standard. It's based on a lot of bureaucracy and documentation requirements. It has a lot of social aspects to it. Again, thinking about the fact that it's a global standard. And not all of those uh, lend themselves to be very efficient or sometimes even practical in North America, in countries with like ours, with really strongly established legal frameworks and a variety of other safeguards and checks and balances in place. And that's not to suggest that FSC uh, you know, is not the right fit in many places. It is. It is the right tool in many places, but not in every case. SFI, as a contrast, is a North American-based standard, stands for the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. It was really based uh, and founded by a variety of landowners, forest, uh, forest landowners, as well as forest products industries here in North America with the intention of being practical. And it was aimed at practitioners with continuous improvement in mind. And because it was based in North America, it leverages very strongly the existing legal framework and the best management practices and, and uh, data analysis and monitoring and all those things already in place. And so it tends to be less prescriptive and more process or outcome-based. As a result, it also tends to be more efficient. I won't say easier to implement because they all cover many, if not all of the same aspects, but it doesn't focus so much on um, exactly how you need to do something, but rather focuses on the desired result. It was kind of based on the basis of uh, ISO. And so for a lot of North American manufacturing mills, it was more streamlined into their procedures. One of the things that I think is really important to recognize, and I think it's a huge strength for SFI and for North America, quite frankly, is that we do operate in wood baskets that have been widely recognized as being relatively low risk. Not to say perfect. I mean, certainly I won't say they're perfect. We always have things we can do to improve. But when you look at our wood baskets relative to the rest of the world, there's broad consensus that our wood baskets in North America are at low risk of for instance, with, with legal compliance, we have strong legal compliance. We have strong labor laws. Um, you know, we have, we don't widely use GMOs. Uh, we don't have wide-scale deforestation and conversion happening. These kinds of global risk categories oftentimes aren't very applicable in North America. And that's a huge benefit for us. The other thing that is really important, though, is that across North America, including Canada, there's a, a long-standing mindset of conservation. And there's an ethic around forest management and natural resource management. Um, and I think you see that in, in you know, our public policies. You see it in, in what we as nations invest in, in our strong governmental entities that manage lands and also uh, assist with private landowner outreach and management and things of that sort. And SFI builds on that. And that's one of the unique strengths of SFI. SFI has promoted and required logger training. We went from less than 30% of the logging workforce being trained in the early 1990s to now over 97% of the logging workforce being trained. And that's huge because if you're a trained logger, it doesn't matter if you're operating on certified land or non-certified land. You're going to instill that knowledge and that wisdom, and that information on every acre you harvest from. And that truly benefits the sustainability of our forests and, and, and you know, our communities. And lastly, with SFI, the other thing I'll mention is that SFI really prioritizes and requires community engagement. And I think that that's also very, very critical. You know, forest product mills, landowners are often in rural parts of the states or, or provinces where you may not have a lot of other economic opportunity. Uh, and, and it's really important, I think, that 
the forest products industry as a whole, landowners and mills like SAPI, really invest in those communities. And for instance, SAPI has an employee ideas that matter grant program. We have community grant programs. We participate very strongly in community events, and not specific to forestry. We support you know, various educational opportunities. Many of our foresters go to schools and state fairs and county fairs. And those are really important opportunities to connect with the people that we serve and the communities that we serve. And I think that that's something SFI prioritizes and SFI requires that community engagement. And I think that that's been huge for getting our message out about the work we do, the benefits we provide, and the importance of forests, because it starts with the forest. And sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a, that's a great answer. What is the key takeaway that you would want pulp and paper company to know about forestry certification? I think forest certification is a fantastic tool and a fantastic opportunity to improve the sustainability of your procedures, to improve the rigor of your due diligence systems and your supply chain engagement, but only if it's treated as such and only if it's fully supported and resourced and leveraged. Certification is not a quick fix like we've talked about. It is not something to be scoffed at or to assume that you can do overnight without other changes to your business. Uh, hopefully, if you've approached it correctly, you can integrate those changes and really have them become ingrained in the ethos, in the identity of your company or your organization. That's the only way that certification will be long-term sustainable for you. But it's important to recognize that certification gives you great insight into your work and what you can do better, but also the interactions of your supply chain. And I think it's important to really use that tool for the value that it provides in that opportunity and to take it seriously. It is what you make it. I think certification has a lot of complexities and sometimes folks like myself who are experts in this field, it's hard to sort of pull ourselves away from all those complexities and that data. But I think it's important we do so because certification provides meaningful claims and we need as an industry and as a profession, we need to be better about telling our story We need to be courageous enough to tell our story, and we need to trust that people want to hear it. And I think they do. And I think certification gives us that opportunity, but we've got to figure out a way to make that message meaningful and tangible, something that someone who doesn't understand the details can absorb. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's where we we fall down. and, And maybe that's the next phase of certification is to help the industry as a whole figure out, you know, how can we distill all these commitments that we have? and all the lessons learned and the continuous improvement opportunities that are still there. And not only provide a product claim, but really provide a claim for the industry and a claim for the value that forests provide for people, planet, and prosperity. That's that's Sappy's saying. We call it the three Ps. And we strive to make sure that we are sustainable. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Rebecca. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Christina. And I hope it was helpful information for you and your viewers. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest, Rebecca Barner, Forestry Certification Manager for SAPI North America. Find more episodes of this podcast, as well as the latest industry news, at pulpandpapercanada.com and on Twitter at pulppapercanada. You can also search for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Christina Urquhart, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pulp and Paper Canada, the podcast.